Welcome to Asia Abridged, where we highlight the best of Asia society in 15 minutes or less. I'm Eric Fish. The roughly 1 million Rohingya Muslims residing in Myanmar have long been a persecuted minority in the mostly Buddhist nation. But things have taken a turn for the worse over the past few weeks, as reports have emerged of widespread rape, murder, and destruction in Rohingya villages, leading to an exodus of refugees to neighboring Bangladesh. In this episode, I speak with Deborah Eisenman, executive director of the Asia Society Policy Institute and a leader in the organization's Myanmar initiative, about what's going on. Can you describe who the Rohingya are and what their status is in the country? So the Rohingya are a stateless ethnic group residing primarily in Myanmar, um, with about a million people there. Um, They're seen in Myanmar as uh, illegal immigrants from Bangladesh, so they're actually called Bengali by most folks there, Um, and they're living at the border of Myanmar and Bangladesh in Rakhine State. How does their treatment compare to Muslims more broadly in Myanmar? Um, Muslims in Myanmar aren't the most well-treated group uh, regardless, but the Rohingya are are by far treated much, much more poorly because they are a stateless group um, who's existed in Myanmar for centuries on that that borderland with Bangladesh. So nobody claims them, nobody gives them political mobility or, or the rights that citizens have. There are Muslims in Myanmar who are citizens who enjoy the privileges that others in Myanmar enjoy, but... Um, um, the Rohingya are stripped of any voting rights or stripped of any kind of thus political mobility or, or ways to express grievances. And then many Muslims in Myanmar have been affected by a number of um, Buddhist nationalist laws that have been promulgated regarding interfaith marriage or the number of children a family can have and, and so forth. It's important to realize that Rakhine State is incredibly impoverished anyway. Out of all of Myanmar's um, states, it's, it's one of the poorest, one of the least developed. It's mostly in a floodplain. There's not a lot of opportunity there regardless. And so there is this fear by the local Rakhine that the Rohingya could take over in terms of population. So that's why you're seeing laws that limit the number of children that, that people can have within a certain number of years, because there's this fear of, of another taking away the little that, that the community already has. Combined with that, obviously, is this religious dimension and this the fact that, that these people also aren't citizens of the area. Area, so they're seen as illegal immigrants or interlopers. And I think that's probably a narrative that we're hearing happening in other countries like the U.S., um, but not to, to this extent, obviously. How does their treatment now compare to during military rule? So in 1982, um, there was a citizenship law passed that gave Myanmar's um, Rohingya white cards, which were temporary residence or identification cards. And with those, they could vote in um, elections. And they voted in the 2008 constitutional referendum, for instance, and in the 2010 elections. Those cards were taken from them before the 2015 elections, um, which removed that mobility. But, you know, even in that time frame, I mean, if you saw in 82, with those white cards, they thus lost any path to citizenship. And what kind of representation do they have in government? None. So I, I'm actually fairly sure there are no Muslims in Myanmar's parliament at present, um, but the Rohingya have no representation. Can you describe the recent violence that's broken out, who's carrying it out, why it's happening? I'll just step back to October, actually, if that's okay. And there were attacks on border guards then by a group called the Faith Movement, which seemed fairly organized, um, 
somewhat well-funded and attacked um, these border guards kind of in the name of uh, Rohingya insurgency. And that led to a spate of violence then that was condemned by the UN and seen as, you know, a time for the military to have then engaged in things like rapes and killings, um, which worried the international community um, and obviously led to a a huge outflux of the Rohingya from Myanmar. Um, So now almost a year later, um, the day after a commission led by former UN Secretary General Kofi Annan that was created by Aung San Suu Kyi put out their final report on creating a peaceful and prosperous Rakhine state for all who live there. There was an insurgent uprising, again, by this group called the Faith Movement, who have changed their name to the Arakan Rohingya Salvation Army, who again attacked numerous border guard posts and and army installations. And that led to, obviously, counterattacks by the military, as well as, um, you know, inciting local violence and communal violence. The UN, I believe, reported over 120,000 Rohingya have have fled Myanmar in the past week for Bangladesh. Um, Borders are closing. You have people, Rohingya, living in this no man's land and subhuman conditions. You're seeing um, Rohingya refugees dying at sea or dying trying to cross over to Bangladesh. Um, They're dying at the hands of of the military or others. I mean, the, the conditions for them, putting aside who is engaging in this violence, is so horrific and subhuman and tragic. And, um, you know, that's what we should be looking at and figuring out how to de-escalate and put them toward a path to a better life, an actual life. So there have been lots of reports of villages being burned to the ground and, as you said, widespread rape and murder. Who exactly is carrying out these attacks? So it's varied. And honestly, it's it's hard to say one group is or is not. There are certainly numerous reports about the Burmese military um, carrying out attacks and violence. There are obviously, um, this violence started with the ARSA um, attacking border guard and police posts. So they are certainly involved in carrying out violence. Um, there are also reports of Rakhine uh, nationals carrying out violence, burning homes. Um, but really, all of this is reporting that's coming, frankly, from folks who are seeing it not directly on the sidelines. The area is close to journalists. Um, so we're getting reports from people who are fleeing the violence. It's often not sure who's committing the violence. You know, but we do hear all of these groups being blamed for it. And I'm, I'm sure that there is blame to, to share. The ARSA, this group that launched the attacks that were the pretext for the retaliation, uh, how fringe is this group compared to Rohingya more broadly? It's hard to say how fringe because it's it's fairly new. So I believe the group started to catalyze after 2012 and the communal violence that took place at, at that time. And as I mentioned earlier, they carried out an attack last October. But they are a group that's being funded from outside sources, um, from diaspora sources. You know, they don't speak for all of the Rohingya. There are reports that they too are engaged in violence against the Rohingya while they are engaging in violence under a pretext of they are looking for freedom and mobility and rights for the Rohingya. It's not clear that they are supported by all the Rohingya. And quite frankly, if you look at what's playing out now, I can't imagine that that they would be. Ever since these flare-ups started last October, we've seen words used, genocide, ethnic cleansing. Uh, Are these the correct terms to be using now? I don't believe so. So genocide is a 
a really serious term to be levied. And I've worked in communities that have, I don't want to say recovered, but communities that were affected by genocide and ethnic cleansing. I don't see evidence of systematic killing of a nationality, and I'd, I'd caution folks not to think in that vein. You know, the UN Secretary General very recently said he hopes he sees a risk facing of ethnic cleansing and hopes we don't get there, and I, I share that sentiment. But at present, I think it's a horrific situation, but that those words may be too big. So Aung San Suu Kyi, Nobel Peace Laureate, de facto leader of Myanmar, how much power does she actually have over the situation? How much willingness has she shown to do anything about it? This is a really tough question. You know, if you look back across fairly recent history, you know, even to the 80s in Myanmar, obviously the Rohingya aren't the, the best treated people. Um, as I said, you know, they're not a, a group that's had citizenship in Myanmar. They're not a recognized ethnic minority of the 135 recognized ethnic minorities Myanmar has. So they're not a popular group, and they've long been victims of oppression and communal violence. Then you see this promulgation of, of Buddhist nationalist laws and of just a rise of Buddhist nationalism. That's why some people call them kind of the most persecuted minority in the world. That said, Aung San Suu Kyi has been an icon for democracy for, for decades as well. But she is the de facto leader of a civilian government. And unlike the United States or some other Western governments, as a civilian leader, she's actually not commander-in-chief of Myanmar's army and military. There's no control that she has over the military, and the military controls the ministries of defense, of of home affairs, and of border control. Um, so there are things that it's just she's not going to be as able to stop because she doesn't have the power to do so. That said, many find it surprising that she hasn't spoken out more about what's happened there, um, that she hasn't used her voice to stand for human rights. She did commission Kofi Annan and, and others to, to look into the situation in Rakhine State. She asked them to be bold. I'm told that she's creating the, the mechanisms for the recommendations in the, that report, and it's a good report, for those recommendations to take place. She loses the political space to do so when an insurgent group that the Myanmar side has labeled a terrorist group has, has you know, engaged in the actions that they've engaged in. My hope is that there'll be an immediate de-escalation of violence and that she can find the, the space to really um, enact some of those recommendations, but that also there's a space for her and others in Myanmar to really stand for human rights for this group. How much does this reflect the greater political environment since the 2015 elections when Aung San Suu Kyi and her party was elected to power? You know, there's a lot that Myanmar still needs, right? I mean, they've made leaps and bounds in certain areas, but you can't overcome a military dictatorship in a couple of years. And you can't overcome kind of a legacy of oppression in a couple of years. When she... Um, took this de facto leadership role of the country, she really felt that kind of creating a lasting peace and instigating an end to the many decades civil war happening in her country would be the legacy that she wants. So it wasn't, you know, I need economic opportunity for all or, you know, I want X, Y, and Z for the country, but it really was creating a peaceful country that could then build to be a prosperous country. My feeling here is that... Um, she is hopeful to get to this space and the country is hopeful to get to this space of a lasting peace. But there are still a lot of areas of mistrust between 
ethnic groups and the government, um, whether it's in the area of security or elsewhere. And there's still a lot of, I think, um, worry about a way forward for the country. And and the situation is certainly undermining um, a lot of the gains that that have happened. And I think is really one that that I'm hopeful can de-escalate very quickly. Do you have any sense of how this situation is being perceived by ordinary people in Myanmar, if it's having any effect on Aung San Suu Kyi's popularity or the military's popularity? You know, my sense is is that because the treatment of this group has, has never been great, there are folks who aren't as engaged in it as you'd think they would be. However, there are many people who also see this as a kind of terrorist uprising who are fearful for what may happen to their country. Also, a lot of the violence at home is seen as the Bengali attacking the, the Rakhine Buddhists. So it's it's seen in the opposite frame as, as it's being shown in international news. There are some who are part of the kind of democracy movement with Aung San Suu Kyi who are disappointed um, that she hasn't spoken out more about the treatment of the Rohingya, I should say the mistreatment of the Rohingya. But my sense is there's kind of a push and pull and truly a fear of the ARSA and terrorism in Myanmar. What's the international response been to this? So the international press response is, if if we're talking in that frame, has been very much about the harrowing plight of the Rohingya, you know, both seeking to, to show that plight and also to place blame for it. I'd say the international kind of official response has been much more of a de-escalation of violence is needed, the upholding of human rights is needed. You're also seeing um, from a few Muslim leaders, you know, blame for the treatment of the Rohingya as well as, you know, obviously calling for the cessation of violence, but also claiming that this is genocide or ethnic cleansing or, you know, a fear that this could spin into a a wider um, terrorist fight. But the response has not has not been good by any means, um, particularly by Western leaders. Does there seem to be any real hope on the horizon that the situation will de-escalate and morph into a permanent solution? Um, I think that there is hope on the horizon that the situation will de-escalate. You know, other neighboring borders will open. You know, fighting will die down. In terms of a solution, that needs to come from something that's regional, regional, calibrated, and comprehensive. And my concern is that this cannot be an issue where all hope is placed on Myanmar for a, a permanent positive solution. It also can't be a situation where um, the goal is to assign blame to a party. It's easy to do that. Great, fine, but we now need to move to a space where what is the solution for these persecuted people um, and how do we get them there as quickly as possible. Thanks for listening to Asia Abridged. If you want to hear more, you can visit our show page at asiasociety.org slash podcast. You can also subscribe on iTunes or follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Asia Society. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.